Welcome to Work, Rest and Pay. In this podcast, we look at the future of work and pay through the lenses of both employers and employees. And we explore practical scenarios and potential innovative ways forward. I'm your host, Laura Whitfler, and I'm ADP's External Communications Manager here in the UK. So artificial intelligence is one of the most important technologies in the world today. But how will this technology affect work in the future? How has the pandemic accelerated developments? And how has the pandemic potentially changed perceptions around this topic? Joining me today to share their insights and views on this are Giselle Mota. Giselle is Principal Future of Work at ADP, based out in the US. Hi Giselle, you're very welcome to this podcast. Thanks for having me. And also joining us in this discussion is David Johnson. Uh, David is Service Director for ADP UK and Ireland. You're also very welcome to the podcast, David. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Laura. Great. So I know you both have plenty to say on this topic and we will have no problem filling the time. But what we wanted to do was to, to kick us off to refer to one of the sort of most recent publications in this area. Back in December time uh, in 2020, the MIT task force on the work of the future looked at the developments in AI um, and their relation to the world of work. And there were a couple of conclusions and findings that came out of that, which I wanted to just um, talk about today to, to get us started. So the paper concluded that sort of the recent fears about AI leading to mass unemployment are unlikely to be realized. Instead, the authors believe that, according to them, like all previous labor-saving technologies, AI will enable new industries to emerge, creating more new jobs than are lost to the technology. At the same time, the authors do see a significant need for governments and other parts of society to help smooth this transition. So they acknowledge this, especially for the individuals whose old jobs are disrupted and who can't easily find new ones. So let's dive into what this actually means and some of the detail around this and talk about the implications um, and the ways forward in this area. So Giselle, could I ask you to sort of take us back to basics and to explain to myself and to some of our listeners, you know, what exactly we mean by artificial intelligence being used in the workplace? Because for me, as a novice to the area, you know, I have visions of a mechanic arm, a robot, but I know that there's lots more to it. And that that's, the, that's a very simplistic way and maybe even an old fashioned way of thinking about AI. So I'd love to understand from you, you know, what are we talking about here and now when we talk about AI in the workplace? Thinking AI is, you know, the robotic arm and all those imagery that you just you just kind of conjured up for everybody. It's you're not alone. A lot of people think that way. And it's basically because that's what we've been taught in media. Um, and I will share with the audience that first to answer that question, think about everyday life. So I want to give you some examples of when you're using AI and you might not even be noticing it. So when you go to, for example, the airport uh, to check in and you're using your biometric data, your eye scan, your fingerprint, you're getting through security faster that way, that in itself is AI being used to capture that through computer vision and through other biometric scans that tells the computer who you are and is able to identify you. The, you know, when you're hailing a rideshare in your app, 
or when you're using a different app, if you're driving or commuting and it's telling you, hey, you need to leave your house at a certain time because it's reading traffic conditions in real time. Uh, perhaps I know here in the States, we have grocery stores where you're able to go to do your shopping and you never have to interact with a human person. You can actually go in because there's camera sensors around you on the ceiling, everywhere, reading your movements, reading what you're picking up off of the shelf, scanning it, and then you're able to move forward. That is AI. So the list goes on and on. I can continue to tell you different things, but if we define it, uh, it's nothing new. It's been around since the 1950s. You know, a form of, forms of AI were existent there. But what has changed is the ever-increasing capabilities of AI because humans are figuring out how to do more with computing data. So there are different types of AI. So simply being put, you know, I'll just even just say right now that AI is about, in its simplest form, to answer your question, Laura, it's, it's simulating what humans can do. So what can humans do? We think, we create, we're abstract, we deduce, we decide and come up with like uh, even surface insights and we learn. And so being able to kind of mimic what the human capability is able to do in our brains, that is what AI is. And that is fueled by data that computers use to process binary logic and do everything from carry out a conversation with a chatbot uh, to queue up your movies so that you can binge watch them and enjoy based on the data uh, of what you've watched or what people like you have watched. So in the simplest of forms, it is it is ubiquitous in a lot of ways. It's very much ingrained in our daily lives and we don't even notice it. And secondly, it's it's powered by data. And what AI is, is simply recreating what humans can do or trying to make a computer recreate what a human can do. So yeah, it's there, it's omnipresent. I'm oblivious to it, but it's happening and it's part of my life, yeah. And it's making my life probably better, right? From Or more efficient, maybe, is, is, is the term, okay. So are there particular sort of industries or where, is, where do you see the sort of biggest and most exciting developments happening? You mentioned sort of retail a little bit there. You know, what, what sectors would you say are, are those that really excite you? You know, and I mentioned this just a second ago that there's different types of AI. So like the most basic type of AI is really reactive. So the examples I gave, you'll see them in a lot of the industries that we have today. So I'll share with you two quick ones. Like there's, there's a basic type of AI that's pretty much it's programmed and providing a predictable output. So Netflix recommendations when you're watching Netflix and your next show comes up because you watched you know, Downton Abbey, and now all of a sudden it's telling you that you must love other shows in that era. So it's going to, it's going to bring that up. That's a basic type of AI. And there's another type of AI that's learning based on past experiences, and then it's observing actions in data. And that type of AI using historical data, it's called limited memory. And what that is, is an example of, for example, when you see a self-driving Uber, that's being able to understand, oh, that's a stoplight, that's a human, that's another car. It's being able to use historical data and identify and be able to react. Now, there's other types of uh, AI that are more advanced, and that's when we start getting into like Hollywood, <laughs> what we think AI is, and that's theory of mind. Theory of mind is more like when you look at Sophia, the humanoid robot, we're basically looking at and a computer being able to make decisions 
and that are similar to humans. And then self-awareness is the last type of AI. And that's, we haven't gotten there yet. That's the one that Hollywood amplifies and what everybody gets scared of, which is like, AI is self-aware. It's thinking on its own. It's like her. I don't know if you guys seen the movie with Joaquin Phoenix and uh, it's it's called Her. And this this robot is, uh, the, or the AI is able to basically like have a relationship with a human. Very strange. So oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah, I'll be watching that one. <laughs> yeah. So, but to answer your question about the the industry, now I think that the the industry that's using those basic types of AIs, the one that I mentioned the, at the beginning, which is more of being pre-programmed, uh, using historical information, etc., is manufacturing. Now, manufacturing to me is like the comeback kid. It started off uh, back in the day with the, like the first industrial revolution, where we're seeing wartime, um, you know, assembly lines of the Ford uh, and coming up with equipment and machinery. Now, when we look at where how far manufacturing has come now, especially with the pandemic, we have seen because of the pandemic a surge in e-commerce, and with e-commerce, you're seeing more warehouse workers more supply chain and logistics. We're seeing an increased focus basically on organizations and manufacturing to mitigate risks. So health and safety, being more efficient in their operations, driving down costs. And all of these are drivers that are creating this perfect storm for things and technologies like AI to surface in manufacturing. Today in manufacturing, we're seeing an increase in robotics. So I know you've probably heard how like Amazon fulfillment centers around the world, they're able to have these robotic uh, associates, if you would. So they're able to scan, find whatever the uh, item is, lead an associate to just scan that QRC code and be able to take something off the shelf quickly and keep uh, processes moving efficiently. So there's robots that are working alongside humans in manufacturing processes in warehouses. And then we have digital twin technologies, uh, which I'll get into probably a little bit later, which basically it's just a simulated digital version of a physical asset. And so we're seeing that being driven by AI today as well. There's smart buildings that are using, you know, the internet of things and sensors to predict when there's a breakdown, to be able to help basically do all of those main factors that I said. So two quick examples. So I talked about digital twins. So during the pandemic, one of the main focuses was to have less people on the premises because social distancing, because you know we had to get, we had to send people home. There were furloughs, there was a lot of things happening. So in manufacturing, and in um, these warehouses, for example, uh, there have been less people having to man physical assets. Now, I played around during the pandemic with something that I call playtime on my on my social media. And what, what I've done for playtime just to play around and to waste time in a productive way has been just kind of like uh, exploring with different technologies, demos, and getting my hands, uh, you know, rolling up my sleeves and doing that. So one that I used was uh, working with a digital twin uh, capability. Um, and basically, I was able to take an engine 
which uh, would have been used in an airplane and and be able to not physically be there with that physical asset in my space. Rather from home, I was able to, with a simulation of that engine that was being read through artificial intelligence and, and data that because of sensors that were attached to this physical asset away from me, I was able to check the temperature in real time of that engine and the fan speed and you know being able to check to see was there a ticket that needed to be input for maintenance and reordering of parts and looking at this part simulated 3d inside and out from every angle aerial views all around all in real time and this is a type of technology that again digital twins is nothing new either but the capacity to be able to uh, make it smarter to see things data in real time and then take action and predict upon it because AI is reading those sensors and data and being able to get ahead and tell a human, hey, you need to go send a maintenance crew to fix this physical asset that might be miles and miles away from you. So that's the reality of what's happening in manufacturing. Uh, another example of AI in manufacturing today, be in the pandemic, again, health and safety, and workforce planning to determine the capacity of people that you need to have in a location has been huge. So for example, AI can be used with computer vision to help flag whenever workers in a manufacturing setting are maybe too close together in proximity. So AI will have computers take a look and you will see like heat maps and squares starting to identify people uh, through computer vision and saying, sending a flag to that manager or sending a notification, a push notification on a mobile device to say, hey, XYZ uh, employee is way too close to ABC employee. You need to, you know, see, have an intervention there or create a training again around social distance. So all of these things um, are being, I guess, amplified because of the pandemic in a sector like manufacturing. Cool. So turning to, to you, David, in terms of sort of payroll and HR, you know, are there areas that you can share with us that you've seen that really have excited you um, in sort of our industries? Or are we looking to those manufacturing mega advanced areas and to bring them into our industries? Or where, where is it at for HR and payroll in your in your view? So I think it's really around the predictability. We talked about that kind of predictive modeling, predictive data earlier. And, you know, it's for us, when we look at um, what we do there's, there's a fairly straightforward process and the process is is dead straightforward super easy unless people introduce error and the error comes in through data or time lags or something goes wrong and the real and and typically you can spot when those things are going to happen but only if you've got a brain the size of a supercomputer and you're you're looking going well if that factor happens and there's a great website as i'm sure giselle knows which is if that then this you know, if, if this happens, then what's going to happen next kind of thing. And so if you can start joining all those things up, then you can start removing those errors and then you can go around and re reduce them and you can just make everything a lot easier and you can take all the friction out of out of work. So actually for the kind of HR and process driven things, so not just HR and payroll, but all process driven things, you can get really slick and making these processes remarkably, remarkably smooth and, and kind of frictionless because you're, you're, you're using your historical data to train forward. And, and make those models really, really effective. It's just, it's the coolest opportunity. I and mean, I'm risk of sounding ridiculously excited about it. It's just a really cool opportunity to make processes really, really easy. 
Now, you, you mentioned earlier about kind of the world of work and what's going to happen. You go, well, problems don't go away, okay? In the same way, you, know, you can't destroy energy, you just change its form. The problem just shifts somewhere else, okay? And the human race creates jobs because it needs, because it needs these problems solved. So you're always going to have problems to solve. So people are just going to be solving a different problem. Um, in the same way that, you know, you, you people who, when, when car factories were automated, you didn't fire everyone. What you did was retrain them to look after robots and make sure that the automation could, could function. So you just had different skill sets. So the skill sets changed. The problems still exist, just in a slightly different form in the same way, you know, without wanting to sound too academic about the whole thing, you know, energy changes form. The problem just changes shape and goes somewhere else, but you've still got a problem to solve. And the other thing around that is, the, is humans' expectations about their standard of living perpetually increasing. There are far more people in the middle class around the world now than there were 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. And as that comes up, you need to be super more productive in order to produce more things to enable everyone. And if you want to look at what the middle classes will be consuming in 10 years' time, look at what the super rich are consuming now. So as you go through that journey, you start going, well, actually, we all need to be able to kind of do these these cool things and have all this stuff. And to do that, we all have to be far more efficient. And so that's where I think the, um, the opportunities around uh, big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence are just fantastic. And in a process-driven outsource organization like, our, like ours, that's the thing we've got to wrestle. And, it's, um, and it comes down to make, you know, demystifying it, making it really um, attractive to people to be involved and not, not have a barrier. You've got to enable people to walk in and understand this stuff because it's still, as you say, you know, Giselle mentioned Hollywood. You know, Hollywood have us believe, you know, if you play with this stuff, you know, the Terminator's going to arrive and uh, Skynet's going to take over. And that's a load of old cobblers. It's like complete rubbish, but that's that's what everyone goes, ah, oh, that's what's going to happen. It's not, absolutely not. You know, you think, um, so, you know, there's a real, real benefits, real opportunities that there are with any new technology. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. Point taken, definitely, that, you know, you have to look at these things holistically, but on, on, and there's lots and lots of opportunity. You both have just like mentioned loads of things like that I've never thought of, you know, happening or have the potential to happen or to scale. But, you know, at the same time, is there a danger that things are moving too fast? You know, where, what are the considerations? You know, government regulation, is that keeping pace? You know what there must be concerns around some of this happening so quickly especially with you know giselle you mentioned the pandemic having accelerated some of this what you know what would you say to that in terms of the considerations or what do we need to pause and think about or or involve in this process yeah i think david even was starting to touch on this because everything is getting smarter if you would and we're embedding smart processes and intelligence or ai into a lot of our processes even in you know again he mentioned payroll and i'm thinking about how we now can surface insights from hire to retire in payroll and hr so you think about you know more people's data being shared, more insights, more visibility. It is good on one hand because you can, for example, use AI to help people learn better and, and have a personalized coach and training or help someone onboard in a personalized way or match their skill set to career progressions and the benefit selections. There's everything from hire to retire that you can do. The problem with this is that the more that we share and the more that we embed intelligence into processes, like even think of touchless because of the pandemic, touchless became a big deal. So touchless clocking in where you can use a biometric data or your fingerprint to scan in or um, it could read your eye 
for with facial recognition, it can do that. It's all good, but what happens with that data? And so the, the other hand or the other side of the coin is data governance, where we need to have be careful on who has access to this data. What are they doing with that data? Is it being shared to a third party? Are there security, uh, is there a security process wrapped around whatever we're doing with data and AI? Because we, I don't know if you have been seeing the craziness that has been going on with cybersecurity recently in recent news. There are so many hacks going on. Absolutely. Yeah, even in the US, there was the most, the largest hack that we've ever seen and the largest breach that we've ever seen in history up until now. So, I mean, this is real and it's happening. And the more we, sh we make processes smart, that means that more data is being connected. We're viewing more information, but what happens to that data? Do people know that their data is being used and how it's being used? For example, when you do use facial recognition and with all of the issues globally that have happened around discrimination and racial tensions around the world, if somebody's being scanned, do they know that their data is being scanned? Is it being used for police surveillance? you know, these are all real issues that governments even are thinking about. So the United States, um, the European Union, a lot of people kind of are, are starting to think about regulations that need to be put in place. And even ADP itself, way before these regulations came up, we have an AI ethics board, we have data governance, we have all of these things because we know that we're dealing with people's personal uh, information and we have to protect it. So it's a great point, Giselle, because there's there's the piece around the, the if you like what's happening with my data. Mm -hmm. There's also the piece about the kind of the engineering challenges around the bias, you know, and, and like the world is designed by middle-aged white guys. I'm a middle-aged white guy. If I walk up a set of steps, it's the right length of my legs because I'm six foot one, right? But if you're a five foot four woman, it's or indeed five foot four, the world's not designed for you. Okay, so we need to make sure that not only do we we have the right controls around the data, but we also have mm -hmm the right engineering skills and the right allowances in terms of engineering and programming to make sure that we're eliminating bias and make we do all this fantastic work around, around uh, in ADP around diversity, equity, inclusion. And we should be really proud of what we do because we we turn we don't just talk a good game. We turn it into reality and we actually have actions, real, real stuff that mean is meaningful for people. Mm -hmm. But if we don't look after the kind of the outputs in the same way, we're just reinforcing all the discrimination that's gone before. So we have to be, there's these two things, there's the kind of the big ethics piece, and then there's the control of the data as well and what's happening to it. So it's, those are those are interesting, but when I look at those, those are kind of like engineering technology challenges. Um, and I think we can, we can, and one of the, the big challenges, I've been, I've been talk, uh, talking to the, the CBI around this. One of the issues is around how do you design legislation in such a fast-moving environment so you create legislation today but actually it might not be fit for purpose in a year or two's time so you need some really sharp legal minds to design legislation that makes actually we need to ensure the safety in our use of data but also the safety in terms of how we eliminate bias from these things as well and so the, the the outcomes we produce using artificial intelligence are good for humanity and good for what we're trying to do versus become nefarious and not necessarily by design but just become nefarious to be exploited and I'd, I'd add to what you said there you're it's so key to have diversity of talent and diversity of thought 
in these decision-making processes. So yes, it's great to have that legal, that legal expertise and that insight. For sure, we need that. And you mentioned the world isn't built for people who are five four. Are you calling me out? I'm five four, David. No, I was, I was, as I was saying, I was thinking, oh no. I'm five four. I'm five four. I'm a woman of color. I'm a Latina. On top of that, and I and I often share when I'm sharing um, my profile with people that I also have an unseen disability, which is dyslexia. So I'm neurodivergent, and you know, I mentioned that to say. Who, if you look in your organizations, or if we all look at our organizations, who is working on our AI? Is it someone who, is it just a group of people that we've outsourced and they, you know, is it a homogenous group of people? Um, or is it, you know, when we look internally, is everybody looking the same, thinking the same, coming from the same lived experience? Or do we have at least, you know, people working internally who are different? Do we have perhaps external boards and checks and balances of people who have a different mindset? So yeah, we need diversity even within. And you reminded me, David, as you were talking, you know, uh, there's this documentary called Coded Bias. It's on Netflix. I mentioned Netflix like twice already in this podcast. <laughs> They're not an official sponsor, by the way. So um, we, uh, I saw the documentary. It is amazing. Coded Bias is it's, it's a group of people that got together. Um, Joy Bulawami is is heading this up. She created something called the Algorithmic Justice League. And wow. what that is, is just like this group of people who are like, hmm, questioning AI, questioning how it's being used, the bias behind it. It actually originated because Joy was working in MIT um, on some AI projects. And she noticed that the facial recognition scan would not identify her or anybody of color. It wouldn't identify them as a register as a human being. It would it would only understand and identify white faces right, or Caucasian faces. And this led her down this rabbit hole um, and exposed a lot of issues in organizations when it comes to AI. So yes, we need different voices, different people of different backgrounds, ages, intersectionality, all kinds of things to weigh in on AI. Um, and that's actually gonna lead to the creation of more jobs itself. We need diversity of thought. Yeah, it's gonna create some 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 great jobs. It's really interesting. The design, how the world's been designed is really interesting because it's you know, even even um, car airbags were designed for you know, like fifteen stone, six foot blokes. And when they impact it, you know, the airbag hasn't. You've got enough weight and and you know kinetic energy when you hit that airbag to diffuse the energy of the airbag. But if you're smaller than me, you've got a problem. Originally, when airbags came out, and obviously the technology's moved on because we then had to learn the lesson. What we need to get to is a point where we don't have to trip over in order to stand up and learn the lesson. So it's it's I think what you described there is, is brilliant, Giselle, because we need to make sure that actually this works without discriminating against a group of people, either by design or just by accident, because both are just as bad as one another. Agreed. Yeah. I suppose bringing it back then to sort of the, the jobs themselves, the potential job creation out of this, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the AL, uh, MIT, MIT also sort of talk about, you know, applying AI with people, um, you know, not replacing people. So where do you see sort of AI helping with the skills development and the job creation in the future, not just in, you know, that engineering technology side of, of innovation, but when it comes to sort of into the workplace then? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, um, Giselle, maybe to, to begin with? Sure. Skills development, job creation. 
I think AI can actually be used to both help move people into roles and it can create new roles. So it's going to be like a dual thing. And I think that as far as skills go, even ADP has been working on um, a skills ontology. So we take our job taxonomies and we look at the job descriptions and we're able to kind of reverse engineer and understand and break down this job description makes a, these are the skills that make up that job description. And even if a person that doesn't necessarily have that specific role on their resume, that specific role that they've worked in before, we can then understand from skills what adjacent skills could make them a perfect candidate for the role. And so in working um, with some of the things that we've been doing at ADP around candidate matching, it's called candidate relevancy, um, the skills ontology, basically we're able to look at someone's job application, a resume, their profile, and deduct from that and their skill sets. That can help an organization to say, you know what, Dave is a really good fit for this role, even though he's never been perhaps um, an engineer in this capacity, he has worked in an adjacent skill set and we can easily train him up or we can easily, you know, move him uh, forward in this role. He would be a great candidate. And so if AI is behind the scenes working on that, it's, it's something that ADP is doing. So that's one way in where, where we can help with AI surface the skills that people have and move them along in their careers. That's one thing, especially now with the, there's such a big transition. People are hopping from industries and jobs with the pandemic that people are looking back and, and just changing, um, jumping ship from roles. Now, the other side of it is the role creation because of AI. So we were talking about ethics, governance, cybersecurity, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like we need more people to start working in those capacities to oversee AI. And so that oversight of AI, that management of AI, um, not only people who are going to work on algorithms and data cleansing and all the traditional things that we know that go, you know, the, the nerdy and geeky jobs. Nerdy of, stuff, yeah. <laughs> like we actually need now like maybe, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, we need people to understand if we're trying to make AI think more like a human, we need people who understand how humans think mm -hmm. and then go back and, and implement that into our technology development. And if we want it to be diverse and to account for the diversity of people that exist, then we need, to David's point, to have those people in the room to working on that and weighing in. And, uh, you know, then we need other people who are the influencers. So we need speakers innovators, thought leaders, those who can synthesize the insights that AI uh, surfaces and then be able to, okay, this is what my data is telling me, but what do I do next? So we need those consultants and those people who can run forward with what the data crunches for us. So it's, there's always gonna be some space for human intervention and, and more roles. And so you've talked about the roles piece brilliantly. I can't, couldn't add anything to that beyond, I think it's really exciting. The, the bit that you touched on around the kind of the skills matching, I think is is just one opportunity. So if you work in a large corporation, as, as many of us do, we do. I know kind of the people probably in a couple of couple of circles. So maybe I know 150 people in the organization by sight, by name. And so when I'm sat there as a as a kind of like director within the UK going, right, what, who are we going to put in here? How are we going to match? How we've got the right skills to go in here? Do you know what? There's probably someone in another business unit somewhere else that I don't know who's mm. got 
amazing skills and it would absolutely add diversity to my team and make my team stronger and come in and really enable us to perform at a higher level. So I think the 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 real. I know there's a there's a startup working on this um, in Israel, but there's a great you know, there's a great opportunity to say, well, like, let's start matching, uh, not necessarily ro new roles, but maybe stretch assignments, projects to an individual to build up their skills, and maybe other teams will benefit from that. Now, and as you go through the work the world of work in the future, Gen Z, millennials. The younger end of the of the talent pool are going to say, "Look, I just want to come and get some experience and some skills and do something really interesting, but I don't necessarily want to work here like fifty years." So, like my my dad, my my father in law, both work for one organization, different organization, but one organization their entire working career. Okay? And mm -hmm. the younger the younger folks joining the working working population probably aren't necessarily thinking about that. Some of them will, so we can't generalize. But that ability to enable to say, "Look, actually, you know what? I can give you." some of what you want within one organization. I can give you new experiences. I can give you new skills. You're not going to get stale. You're going to have fun. It's going to be interesting and stimulating mentally. That is just a great opportunity because then you can keep some amazing people in your organization and you're going to get more out of them. Because when people, you know, we we buy into the kind of the standout approach at ADP, looking at your strengths. So if you can put people where they're strongest, where they're having the best time, where they're doing their best work, more often your company will outperform the others. And that has to be driven by AI. Why haven't we thought about this before, right? Like with dating websites, that's what it is. It's taking it's taking someone's profile, sometimes how they their experiences, their interests, whatever they input in their data, as far as maybe they have to take a quiz and assessment, and it's matching them up with people who, you know, would be a great fit for them. Why haven't we thought about this before, David? I don't know. I'll tell you why I haven't, because I'm gonna show my age, because I've never ever used a dating website. Yeah, I can't say the same, David. I cannot say. But I, it's because I'm ancient. So you think you just come up with something brilliant, David? We just we just used to, we used to write letters on bits of parchment to one another. Wow, pigeon, Maybe. pigeon, carrier pigeon. Well, I strap it on the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and the Tyrannosaurus Rex would run it over. Oh, very good. Yeah, I suppose just 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 coming back to sort of that that skills bit and the knowledge. Um, I know, David, we were talking earlier about sort of Finland. I think that'd be really interesting to just sort of share that what's happening there. You know, how are populations being brought on this journey? Because, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting question, Laura, because it's it's kind of one of the big barriers to adoption of AI uh, is is the understanding of it. So you need to democratize it, make it easy for people to understand because it's, it, you know, otherwise you're, you're straight back to, oh, my God, this is this is the Terminator film again and you know skynet's going to take over and i'm going to be enslaved in a camp and the robots are going to be watching my every move and that's not the case right so you've got to you've got to educate people to a certain level and so mm. um one of the examples that i kind of I, I'm, I'm going to kind of talk through the the gen generics of this i might get some of the detail wrong but in, in finland they kind of took the view that um they've got an intelligent group of people in the population but they're never going to have the investment and the scale to, to compete with silicon valley or kind of the equivalent in china so they're going to throw money you know you've got venture capitalists in in silicon valley who are going to fund things and push it really fast and are brilliant at driving these things and in china you're going to have a different form of funding and it's going to really push the, these technologies and you can you bring the whole power of the state to kind of push this thing so finland again I want to be on this journey but what do we do so they worked out that if they could just get more people talking about ai more people becoming less scared of it then the the level of knowledge would build up in the country so they, well, their aim is to get to a point where you might 
you might come up with a real cutting edge idea in Silicon Valley, but actually, if you want a low cost place or a lower cost place than, than you know, Palo Alto to, to actually implement this thing and drive it and have a really cool workforce who are going to commit to helping you deliver what you want, you go to Finland. So what we're talking about roles and problems, your problem suddenly becomes, where am I going to get this done? Where's the a group, group of people who can actually get my idea live and maintain it and keep it going and, and build it for me? You go, I'm going to take it to Finland. Now, from a kind of what is this going to lead to widespread unemployment, the, the popular, you know, rolling out AI? Well, absolutely not. And you probably find the GDP in Finland will go up as a consequence of having these, these kind of fairly rare um, skills embedded in their population. So I think it's when I look at a kind of change program and you say, well, how do you drive a change? You kind of demystify it. You get people on the change curve. You take the, you know, the, the scare out of it. And then people start picking up. You say, what an amazing idea. And I, I, it's one of those, pro those ideas when you think, I wish I thought of that. I'd love to have come up with that one, but I didn't, obviously. It's interesting that you mentioned about how th there's this connection between how governments spur innovation. So, and they spur kind of the movement forward with technologies and things like AI. So the i think i mentioned earlier that governments are creating more regulations so the european union the united states etc are, are doing this but at the same time the us recently put out this uh bill where they are investing as well because they found that they are lagging behind with with the technology and, and with the development of ai specifically so the same thing i can see them probably taking suit and following kind of what finland is doing to your point david because they're trying to catch up. Uh, I, I believe China, North Korea, or different different or different countries, especially in Asia, are taking the lead, and the U.S. is quite behind at the moment. So they're investing in a research and development. And the pandemic, to bring it back to what Laura was kind of setting us up with at the beginning, uh, during the pandemic, I, because everyone was trying to hurry up and figure out how do we come up with. Uh, solutions around COVID-19 and what do we do? So the U.S. government put out this clarion call asking for anyone with knowledge in data analytics and artificial intelligence to please come forward and help them figure out um, research journals. How do we take all that data and make it smarter so that we can come up with a solution to track and get you know to the bottom of this COVID-19 spread? And so with that, uh, since then, there has been this acceleration in the United States of trying to fund AI, regulate it, and really kind of you know innovate as much as possible around it. So I can I can see this happening across the world. More people trying to catch up um, for many reasons. Well, and the one of the other things the pandemic's done is put big data sets on the evening news. So you sit down and watch the news, and there's a scientist who previously you've looked at and gone a bit of a nerd. Yeah. And and holding the room, and everyone's everyone's just thinking, this person is so clever, mm -hmm. and they've got the, they've got our destiny in the palm of their, our hand. You know whether we can go to the shops, or whether we've got to get it delivered, or whether we can go to the cinema, or whether we've got to sit at home and watch Netflix, um, or do whatever it is. You know they're in the palm, and they're interpreting this data. So do you know what? Do you risk your life? Understand data a bit more. Final sort of words from from you, Giselle. You know, obviously, I'm delighted with things like. Netflix prompts, um, yeah. So things like that, you know, practical applications. But then, you know, I do still at the back of my head, you know, we keep coming back to this robotic image. And 
to be honest, only a few weeks ago on one of the Sunday newspapers, there was an article and it was about one of our major um, retail delivery companies in the UK. Um, listeners will probably know who, who I'm talking about in the UK. They are a tech company at the heart of it. And they're doing what you know we spoke about in terms of really accelerating the pace of um, being able to uh, pick up groceries, deliver them, and obviously with the pandemic and everything, fantastic. And they're scaling this and selling it. And at the end of the day, they happen to be, as the article said, in the retail sector, but they're actually a tech company. Um, but you know, the headline was, the robots are here, dot, dot, dot. You know, and you, you see that and you think, gosh, that something still frightens me about that, to be honest. So what would you say to the likes of me who, you know, don't know that much about what's happening in the background. Um, you know, reasons to be optimistic, yes, but what would you say about our anxieties, if anything, around this? I think because of human nature, we do have to always have our, we have to be aware. We have to be aware and responsible with whatever it is that we create, just like the creation of the internet when that first came into inception. The internet, if you think about it today, it can do glorious things, right? It can get you access to, look, during the pandemic, you were probably able to connect with people like never before. You probably met new people, connected with family when you weren't able to leave your home because you were, you know, uh, sheltering in place. But because of the internet and because of, you know, data, and even sometimes we're talking about, you know, 5G, 4G, all of that happening, but that enables that. What is the flip side of that? Well, there are bad implications. And even during the pandemic with the increase of Zoom and, and all types of video connecting, there were there were incidents where people were hacking in and there were children and others at risk because there were certain people that were misusing that technology. So there's always that reality. It's, it is a reality we can't get away from. So if someone's like, oh, the robots are here, uh, I'd say, yes, there is an, there is an opportunity for all tech to go bad, but then there's opportunity for tech to be used for good, right? There's AI to being developed and people being trained in refugee camps around the world, uh, around and around AI skills and machine learning, and then they're able to have jobs because of it, and they're able to have skills. So there's so many good things, but there's also negative pieces to it. The one thing I'll say, um, again, uh, for the robots here, the, a robot is just a shell of the, what the computer is doing. So it's the computer processing. So, you know, you interact with your device like Alexa or Cortana or whatever the whatever device you might be using. All that is, is it's learning from data, is learning perhaps, you know, from your data of your voice to recognize your voice. It's learning from the data sets of where the questions that you're asking those answers if that are housed in encyclopedias, dictionaries, Google, all the things, it's pulling from that and then being able to, to give you the answer that you're looking for or turn on the lights in your home or cue up your next song that you really like on your playlist. So the if to say the robots are here would be to say, oh my gosh, I'm, a, I'm afraid of Alexa because Alexa is an actual device, you know, but it's it's really the, the processing, the computing, the logic that's happening, that's getting better and, and faster because we're able to connect computers um, and do more with data more than we ever did before. So I think the thing to fear is not the tech itself. It is making sure that the people behind the tech are doing the right thing that the systemic issues that come up behind, you know, AI issues, when we talk about bias, like 
for and and I'll just kind of end here. But when we say something around like, oh, the the AI is biased against women or biased against you know people of color, it's not the AI. What the AI is doing is surfacing a human issue, a systemic issue that might exist already. And so I would say instead of fearing the actual tech, let's kind of fear what like what we have been doing and what AI is just exposing the human condition. <laughs> so I say let's fear that, but let's more than fear, let's address that, let's fix that, let's start fixing the the really messed up things that we have done as human beings. Um, and I think we are starting to do that. So I, I see there's hope there. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Because I was going to say, like when when Pandora opened the box and sickness and death and everything else came out, hope was left in the box, right? So um, let's have some hope that actually we can use this fantastic technology and the amazing potential of it to actually address some of those things that are not perfect in our world. That's what we should be looking at. It's very easy to go on the negative. Gosh, the robots are here, but actually the robots could be doing something really great for us all, and they could really help us address some of those things in society. That none of us are particularly happy with. Absolutely. Well, I can hear both your passion for this um, area, and it's been great to bring some of this to life. Um, with more more examples beyond the robotic arm, etc. Um, <laughs> today. So I hope listeners have found it of use as well, and and also touching on the pandemic and everything that's happening, and that wider debate, as you say, the wider impact of all of this um, down the line. So that's all we've got time for today. Um, so thank you so much for your time. I'm Giselle for joining us from the States and also David from the UK. Thank you for your insight and your contributions today. We'll be back next month. Until then, take care. Bye.